And it's a privilege to be here um, to bring you the Word of God. And one thing about the Word of God is it doesn't matter where you are. Um, it will have its effect in the hearts of people. Uh, I don't know that I've ever I've traveled around the world and been to many different places. I believe this is the furthest north that I've been, though. And um, it's great. Uh, it's a beautiful country here. And I'd love to come back at another time and see some of the the green forest that's here and other things. It's good to see all of your faces. And one thing that I always uh, find true whenever I travel somewhere, that um, whenever we have Christ, there is a brotherhood that we have. There's a unity that we have. Um, although we may come from different backgrounds and different cultures and even at times speak different languages, there's something that brings us together, which is Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm thankful for that and thankful that you're people who want to hear uh, the Word of God, who want to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Uh, it's also good to look out and see so many young faces. Uh, it really is. All your wonderful kids. Uh, I've gotten to see some of them play around at times. And even last night I was visiting uh, with the Dick family and uh, it was pretty chilly. And even the kids wanted to go out then and, and have a bit of fun. And as they came back in and got a little bit of um, some treats and spent time just visiting with families there, um, I'm looking forward to sharing the Word of God with you, and I'm hoping that it will encourage your hearts. Um, this is a message, it's a passage in First Peter chapter 4 um, that I've spent some time back at Grace Community Church teaching uh, my fellowship group through. But this is really the first time I preach this message because I'm taking all of those lessons and making them one. So I think I taught about eight lessons in verses 1 through 11, and I'm going to give it to you in one lesson. And you may ask, well, how much time are you going to take? Um, are we going to have an intermission and you come back later on and finish the message? How are we going to do it? No, by the grace of God, um, I'm going to take maybe 45 minutes, maybe 50 minutes or so, and <laughs> I'll put the claws in there and preach to you the Word of God, and hopefully you walk away and you'll be encouraged as you've heard the Word of God. There's nothing like it. Um, I love preaching it. It doesn't matter. Um, I preached the Word of God before in places where it was just sweltering heat and um, and mosquitoes all around me, and I preached the Word of God in, in places that are um, large and modern, and now I'm preaching the Word of God here in La Crete. I, I love it. This is great. Uh, what a privilege I have, and I really do see it as a privilege to be able to come here, and hopefully whatever services I can provide and Grace Community Church and Grace Advance can provide to help you come together as a congregation, we see it as nothing but a privilege. I do want to say something else before we turn to the Scripture um, we had a phone call with some of the key men um, that are helping lead this. And I can generally say I was so excited after that phone call um, about what I heard and um, could interpret that the Lord was doing here. And as I presented it to the other men who were the other elders and Grace Advance, and they were excited about that possibility. And as well, what was also exciting about it it's to hear about the number of men who wanted to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and be trained. Um, and then I even see these little small faces out here who are hearing the word of God as well. 
and, and that's what is needed. Um, thankful to even spend some time hearing from some of the ladies about how they can minister to one another as ladies and grow in Christ as well. And we have several men, even at our seminary, right away, who even may be possibilities that can come here and minister the Word of God to you. So I'm just um, anticipating what the Lord may do here. So I would just ask if you pause with me and that we pray before we go to First Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. Lord God, thank you for who you are, your graciousness, and you are a good God. We are thankful for that. We're constantly reminder, reminded of the words of the psalmist as he repeats so often that the Lord is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. And what a privilege that I have to teach the word of God to these dear people. I pray that their hearts will be open to it. I pray that you would soften hearts, encourage hearts, console hearts, and where necessary, rebuke hearts. We know that you are God who cares for us, and that's demonstrated on the cross where Jesus Christ would give his life. Help me in these moments ahead to honor you in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me to First Peter chapter 4, and what I'd like to do is read the passage for us so you can understand some of the flow of thought. In First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality and lust and drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And all this they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a wonderful passage. And in this passage you see suffering and sin and persecution. A passage that tells us about prayer and about love and about hospitality and about service and also about being lights. 
I believe this passage and the reason I chose it as you are coming together as this young fellowship and you look to the future and how you will one day be a mature fellowship that can be lights in the world, that is people who can reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe this passage will help you learn to be a biblical church, a biblical body, a biblical fellowship. And it will also prepare you to be what I referred to earlier in which Jesus Christ said, we are to be lights in the world. I believe that all of us are gathered here because you want to learn how to live the Christian life, how to be a better Christian. Um, since I've been here over the weekend, I've shared with some of the men as we were talking just about the Christian life and even sharing with them how uh, with my children, I have five children, three adults and two that are high schoolers, and how I want them to be better living the Christian life than I have been. I want them to surpass me. So despite the fact that I've been a pastor for many years, despite the fact that I'm a professor at a seminary and have these degrees, I want them to be superior to me in how I live out Christ. I want them to be a brighter light than I have been. And that should be the desire for everyone. You want your brothers and sisters to excel you. A pastor would want his congregants to excel him, be better at Christianity even than I have been. Because we live in a world that is in dire need, a world that is in need of people who need spiritual answers. And those spiritual answers will only come from people who are spiritual. And what I mean by spiritual, I'm simply saying people who are saints and who are living in the grace and knowledge of Christ, who are growing in that grace and knowledge. And as they grow in that grace and knowledge, that life becomes attractive to other people, and they're drawn to it. We are to be those lights. I think we all agree that we live in a dark world all around us. Now, it's uh, great to come here in this community, and even as we came from the airport, and Lauren picked us up, and we stopped there at the Country Grill, and we had a nice uh, buffet meal, and we, even some other brothers joined us at, at our table. It was great. And, and even saying, well, we kind of, maybe we just leave our keys in the car here. We don't really lock them. And even at the house, we may not lock the um, our home. That would never happen in Los Angeles. Never. Um, you would come out, and the parking lot would be empty. All the cars would be gone. And you would come home and someone would be in your kitchen cooking dinner, probably. But I do remember growing up, I grew up in Florida, and I remember how things were different as a kid. I mean, you could go, go away and you would come back home and you would see the door open. And your first thought uh, was not, oh no, someone broke into our home. Your first thought literally was simply, who left the door open? Why did you do that? Haven't I told you a hundred times to make sure that you close the door? You didn't think that way because things were different. And you could just leave your keys somewhere and someone would say to you, are these yours? Is this your phone? You could even have the newest iPhone 11. And someone would pick it up and say to you, oh, is this your phone? It's not mine. There was a sense when we thought about families and how families were together and they would be bonded forever. And a man and woman would stay with that person forever. I think about my mom and dad and the only thing that separated them was death. My grandparents, the only thing that separated them was death. And, and my aunt and my uncle, the only thing that separated them was death. It was de until death do you part. It was a certain way that we lived. 
And there's a sense of when it's refreshing to come back and see that there are people that still have certain morals. But at the same time, you need to understand that living morally doesn't mean that you're a Christian. To live morally, to have a sense of right and wrong, doesn't mean that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, that can be something um, that can be a difficulty that's hard to overcome because a person may think, well, I live this moral life. Here are the things that I don't do. Here are the things in life um, that I avoid. And I make sure that I am in church on Sundays and, and I don't do other things on Sundays. And one may think, well, I have a right relationship with God, but that's not necessarily true. It's about living this Christian life, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you engaged with him personally? It was true of my own life where I knew the language of Christianity. And when I went off to university, I thought that I was a Christian until someone presented to me, this is Christianity. It means a personal, engaging, growing relationship with him. And God changed my life. And I became a light in the world. We all want to be lights because of the darkness that is around us. And in this passage... We see how we can do this, and I think this passage will be helpful to Grace Bible Fellowship as you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I'm hoping that one day I might be able to visit again, and someone will be standing here preaching to you as your pastor. And they're training you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you can be a light in this community around you. The light is needed. It's evident. Now, this passage divides into two major parts, and let me give them to you. We'll see in verses 1 through 6 that the example of Christ calls us to live a new life. So this example is saying, live this new life. And then in verses 7 through 11, we'll see that the return of Christ calls us to live a new life. First, here is the example, follow the example of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verses 7 through 11, Jesus Christ is returning again. Make sure that you allow that to motivate you to make godly decisions. Make right decisions. So let's start with this idea that the example of Christ calls us to a new life. The first thing we'll notice if you look at verse 1, Christ's death is the motivation. It says here, therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh. Since he has suffered in the flesh. Christ has set the example. Now remember, uh, these churches of Asia Minor, they are undergoing persecution. And the persecution is very fierce. Um, Families are being torn apart. Uh, Lives are being lost. People are being martyred. Some are being tortured. Some are being thrown to live animals. Some are being literally um, chopped in half because of their faith. And so what Peter does to encourage them so that they wouldn't be discouraged and say, well, why am I living this Christian life? Should I even be living this Christian life? Is it really worth it? He says, remember that Jesus Christ suffered as well. And all of us would do well to think about the suffering of Jesus Christ. That's something that should always resonate in our hearts. How is it that the very God of the universe, the one who has created all things, 
when you go here and you look at the beautiful hills that surround you and when the colors come in the fall and when springtime comes and when summer comes and you can see all the green that surrounds you, be reminded that the God that created all of that suffered and he suffered greatly for you. And he says that should motivate you, realizing that Christ has suffered in the flesh. But notice there's also um, a response to this suffering. Christ's death also requires a response. It's, oh, it's great to think about the fact that he suffered, but the question is, what is my response to Christ's suffering? He says in the text, arm yourselves also for the same purpose, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what is the response? Arming yourselves for godliness. Um, Peter has already uh, addressed this idea before. Look with me at chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 13, where Peter says here, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be revealed or to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here the language is prepare for action. Be prepared to be engaged is what he is saying. Um, my background is somewhat, uh, some athletic in my background. I was at the university and I went there on a uh, football scholarship. And I used to, my position was linebacker. Not that that matters a great deal. Uh, but one thing that was uh, important was practice as you had to practice sometimes long hours in preparation for the game, you had to arm yourself for the game. I remember at times watching film of the other team, and you would analyze it and try to get a sense of um, what you can expect on game day. you look at the film over and over and over. And there's certain exercises that you did to prepare for that game. And when game time came, you felt like I was prepared for action. I was prepared for, in one sense, it was a minor war as you and the other team clashed, and literally you would clash physically on the field. It's interesting here that this language that Peter uses, arm yourselves, but obviously here he's talking about arming yourselves for spiritual warfare. What's going to happen if you are not prepared for spiritual warfare? You will be defeated. You will be a casualty of war. And he says, you must do it here in chapter 1. He says, you do it by preparing your minds for action. That's why it's important, and I'll just make this a, a bit of a commercial, if you will. That's why it's important that you hear biblical teaching. Because in hearing biblical teaching, then the mind is equipped. You're being prepared for action. But if one is not learning biblical doctrine and truths about God and truths about the Christian life and truths about the family, how can I possibly be ready for true warfare? I can't. I mean, it's not possible. So he says here, it's a response. You need to arm yourselves for godliness is what he says. Or it could be actually translated, you need to have this sense of resolve. Because if we go back to chapter 4, he says, for the same purpose. In here, or for the same intention, or for the same resolve. Be resolved 
that you are going to live this Christian life in a godly manner. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. I'm to be a light in the world. Let me follow the example of Jesus Christ, who was the light of the world. Let me follow the example of Jesus Christ, who suffered. Now, I will have to suffer as well. But make sure, as Peter would say elsewhere, make sure that I'm suffering for the right thing. That sometimes people suffer, but they're not suffering for the cause of Christ. It's an honor to suffer for Christ. I was someone sent me a, a video of a man who had just um, been to China, and he was ministering there. And I believe the story because there are several of our missionaries at Grace Community Church who've reported the same thing. So these um, twenty-two men had come from a province in China, and they took a, a train ride thirteen hours, thirteen hours to come and be taught. And then he taught, it was just one day, he taught, he said, from 8 a.m. until 8 p.m. all day long. And they sat on just these hard wooden floors listening to him teach them the Word of God so that they can go back to their different areas and teach other people. And they sat there on those hard wooden floors, and he asked him, he said, now, what would happen if the government right now raided this um, meeting? What would happen to me? And they said to you, oh, simply in 24 hours, um, you would be deported and you would leave. Then what would happen to you, he asked. Well, for us, we would most likely spend three years in jail. And of those 22 men who were pastoring, he asked, he said, well, how many of you have spent those three years in jail? And he said, 18 of them raised their hands. And you say to yourself, if you've already spent three years in jail, why would you then get on a train for 13 hours, and why would you sit on a hard wooden floor and listen to someone teach the Bible from 8 a.m. until 5 p.m., knowing that you may spend another three years in jail? Why? It's obvious for the cause of Christ. Is there anything more honorable than to suffer for Christ? To live for Christ? The one who suffered and bled and died for you. So Peter says there's a response. Yes, Christ has suffered, but your response is to arm yourselves for godliness. Be prepared. Be equipped. And so we must ask ourselves, how am I equipped for this spiritual warfare? Notice Jesus Christ in his resolution. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. See, Christ was resolved, so he is saying to The believers there, you must be resolved as well. He says, for the same purpose, or for the same insight, the same intention, the same resolve. Look at the resolution of Jesus Christ and his suffering. Isaiah 50. Look at Isaiah 50 with me. Isaiah 50. You know, I always love the sound of, of pages turning in the church, hearing pages turn in the Bible. It's a wonderful sound of preachers. It really is. And Isaiah 50 and verses 5 through 7. Notice what it says here of Jesus Christ. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. So this is Jesus Christ speaking when he says, the Lord has opened my ear. It's really saying the Lord has given me a commandment. And what is that commandment? To go and die. And he says, and I was not disobedient. I did not turn back. 
I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Notice the resolution of the suffering servant. So what is he saying? He opened my ear. God gave me a command to go and to give my life as a ransom for many, and I did not turn back. And the resolution is in verse 7. Notice again what he says here in verse 7. He says, therefore, I've set my face like flint. What does it mean to set one's face like flint? It means that I was absolutely determined nothing was going to turn me back. I would not be dissuaded. I would not be discouraged. I would obey my father. I was resolved. In um, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, it says there that Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. And this would be the complement to what he said in Isaiah 50. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. The New King James Version says he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. In the English Standard Version, it says that he set his face to go. He was steadfast in going. Nothing would turn him away from his resolve to go and to suffer and to die. You remember, that's why Jesus Christ said, remember when Peter, what he had told him that he was going to suffer, and Peter told him no. And what were the words of Jesus to Peter? Get ye behind me. What did he say? Satan. Your mind is not on the things of God. My mind is on the things of God. He has told me that I must go and suffer for his chosen people, and I will. Notice something else. Go back to 1 Peter 4. So Christ's death is a motivation. Christ's death requires a response. But I'll also say this, that Christ's death provides a rationale. What do I mean by that? What's, because he says in the end, because he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? He who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. It's talking about believers. And it's saying, now, because I have suffered, Christ has suffered, why would I still want to live in sin? The very thing that caused the death of my precious Savior. That is, every believer should have a sense, as they grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, they should have this sense, a hatred for sin. Now, it's easy to say, um, everyone here, it seems to be, is a, either a parent or a grandparent, just about, right? How many of you would give everything you can for your kids? It's, amen. That's a, that's a good parent. And your kids see that, right? See how much they love you. And um, we would do whatever we could for them. We sacrifice for them. We work hard for them. We provide for them whatever we can provide for our children. We would do that. That's obvious. But here's a question. Um, as a parent, if you knew someone was going to harm them, what would be your attitude towards that person? It'd be a sense of animosity even. Um, maybe you might even say a righteous hatred towards them. 
And if you knew someone had harmed them and they were seeking to harm them again, you would absolutely not go for it. You would intervene. You would step in. You would do something to prevent it. Uh, There have been people that I have counseled because someone has harmed their child in a way that's despicable and they find out about what has happened to that child and there's this righteous, I think, hatred in their heart that we have to be careful about that doesn't turn to something that's unrighteous. So I, I, I present a question to you then. I mean, that's obvious. If you knew someone was going to harm your child, you would absolutely step in. You would do whatever you could. And if you knew they had already harmed them, you would have a certain attitude towards that person. So the question is this. Sin. Jesus Christ became sin on our behalf. When Jesus Christ cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because of sin. So the question is then, what should be our attitude towards sin? This is what Peter's saying, we have ceased from sin. In part, we should cease from sin because we realize the pain it caused our Savior. Cease from it. Notice what else the text tells us. Look at verse 2 of First Peter 4. So as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So Christ's death also gives us purpose, a new purpose in life. And what does it say here? That we do what? We live no longer according to the flesh and the lust of men, but for the will of God. There's this stark contrast that's here. When you come to faith, it is essentially telling us that now we must live the time that we have left for the Lord. When I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ at that university, um, there was this new sense of purpose in life. In all of us, once we come to genuine faith in Jesus Christ, we now have a new purpose in life. And notice what he says, the rest of our time. Uh, time is, as it's been said, time stops for no man. There may be moments in life when we find that um, we look back and we have regrets because we've not used time the way that we should. Peter here says, the rest of our time, live for the Lord. Time prior to that, you did not live for him. You live in a way that was opposite of God's will. As a matter of fact, it fought against God's will. It undermined God's will. But now you have the privilege and the opportunity to live for God for the rest of your life. And this is the lesson is plain that he's speaking here. And notice what he says, so as to live the rest of the time, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. And then in verse 3, now we can make new choices. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. And what does he mean by that? Paul, I bet Peter in some just really plain language is saying, You've lived enough of your life. Now live your life for the Lord. It's sufficient. Some of us, you live 20 years of your life for the Lord, for the world, or 30 years, or 40 years, or whatever it may have been. But it says now, for the rest of your life, give it to Christ. It is sufficient for you to have done these past things. Now what you must do is forsake the past and live for the future. Notice some of the things that, the church was involved in or you pursued 
sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing. Drinking parties and abominable idolatries. All of these things, that was your former life, but now you can live in godliness, is what he's saying. So instead of sensuality, there can be godliness. Instead of lust, there can be the sense of wholesomeness. Instead of drunkenness, there's control. Instead of drinking parties, now let me come together for Christian fellowship. And then he, at the end, he just says, all these other idolatrous things that you're involved in, that time is over. But notice something else. Christ's death also prepares us for persecution. Notice verse 4. Notice what he says in verse 4. In all this, they are surprised that you no longer run with them in the same excess of dissipation, and they malign you. This is a very interesting verse. What is Peter saying? You lived your life in the world, and you used to be involved in some of these lifestyles, some of these decisions, and now you come to faith in Christ, and the people that were once your partners in this lifestyle, now instead of congratulating you and says, oh, I'm so glad that your life has turned around. I'm so glad that you're no longer involved in these things. It's just the opposite. It says, no, instead they blaspheme you. They think that um, you are better than them. And they might say to you, well, you think that you're better than me. So instead of encouraging you in your new faith and your new life, they malign you is what he's saying here. It means to blaspheme, to speak ill of. But he says what you need to understand is this. Notice verse 5. Yes, they may malign you because you are now living this new life. But notice what he says. There's a strong contrast. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They may judge you presently, but God will ultimately judge them. They're judging you right now. They're maligning you and saying that you are people who think that you are um, greater than they are, are people who think that they're better, you're better than they are, and they criticize you, but make sure you understand this. God will judge them. I don't know um, how things are um, here in in Canada when it comes to, it seems like in this area there's a great deal of freedom to express your faith. Uh, I cannot tell you the last time I've heard where in a public school that there's someone says the Lord's Prayer. I've been told that. And actually leading kids to talk about the Lord in, in school. And even one gentleman that I was told that teaches his biology class and he would teach what the textbook says about evolution and then teach the alternative, which is really not an alternative. It's simply the right view, uh, which is the six days of creation. That's wonderful. Unheard of in California. Would not exist. Unheard of in our entire state. And in most of our states in America. Unheard of. And I would say probably even here in Canada, somewhat unheard of. It really is. We live in a dark world. In that dark world, we need people who can be lights in that world. They don't agree with our position. They look down upon it and say that it's um, not intellectual. They say that it's not scholarly. And they say that it's uh, contradictory, but it's not true. We believe in the truth of the gospel. But notice something else. Look at verse 6. 
See, Christ's death and resurrection, it assures our resurrection. It's the assurance of salvation that can be gained. Notice verse 6. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. And what does that verse mean? The gospel was preached to all of us who are dead in our transgressions and sin. This is what Ephesians 2 tells us, that we're all dead in our transgressions and sins. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. We're all walking according to the spirit of the age. But it tells us in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive. And what Peter is saying here is the same thing. You were dead in your sin, and then now, although you were judged by people in the flesh, God made you alive in the spirit, and now you can live for the will of God. Whereas before, you had no capacity to live for God's will. Now you can. What a privilege. But Christ's example sets the pace for us. And then notice verse 7. Notice how there's a transition that takes place. Now, Peter moves to, now, okay, great. Christ is your example. Um, The gospel has affected your life. You no longer live the way that you used to live. But how should you live in the church? And this is where I want to point more of our attention to use Grace Bible Fellowship and what Peter is saying here and lessons for you. How should we live in the church? If Christ is coming back again, what effect should that have on my everyday decisions? Because notice verse 7. The end of all things is near, therefore. And we just pause there for a moment. So what Peter's doing is setting a tone for verses 7 through 11. And he's saying, now, understand this. Christ is coming again. Therefore, what is your response to this reality? How will you respond? Um, it's... I mentioned my five kids and um, three adults. They're moving on with life, and I even soon may be, um, well, at least going to a wedding for one of my sons who has found some found a sweetheart and is probably going to ask her to marry her soon. And and he called me to get advice and what sort of ring should he get and and how much money he should spend. And he initially told me how much he was going to spend. I thought, wow, you're a big spender. <laughs> you really are. The, the, the Marines are paying you well. And um, maybe I should sign up, you know. <laughs> and we talked about other things, and this is what he's going to do. And I thought that was really a joy to my heart to hear him in this stage in life. And now another development of his manhood and where he is. And I just remember, we reminisce a little bit about the days when he was younger, and now here he is, a man, he's about to be married, and one day he'll have a family, and then I'll be a grandfather, and I'll even be older than I am now. Um, but that'll be a joy too, as well. But I remember times when he wasn't the man that he is now, like his other brother. And there are times when, you know what would happen? I would give them some instructions, and I would tell them, this is what you need to do, and I'll be back at such and such a time. And there were a couple of times when I came home early. And when I came home early, they weren't doing exactly what I told them to do. And there were times when I would open the garage door, and they would hear the sound of the garage door, and I'd walk in, and I'd see them scrambling around because I told them to clean the house. And guess what they were doing? 
oh, they were listening to the music, they're doing other things, they're playing around, they're throwing the football around in the yard. I told them to clean the house. But the moment they heard that garage door t- start to go up, guess what they did? Started to scramble. All of a sudden, I hear a vacuum going, right? I see somebody with the broom, and I'm thinking, you can't fool me. You just started to do that, didn't you? Yeah, that's right, Dad. <laughs> that's right. And you started to do it because you realized I was coming back. And what you had done, you thought, well, Dad said he's going to be back at 4 o'clock. We'll wait until about 3.45 to start doing our chores. But what if I didn't tell you what time I was coming back? Would you have thought about it differently? I said, yeah, we would have. I think that's what I'm going to do in the future. I'm not going to tell you when I'm coming back. And what is Peter saying? He says, the time is near, therefore. The, the time for all things to come to an end is near, therefore. He's saying, Jesus Christ is coming back. Make sure that you're found doing God's will. And not scrambling. Because then the time is over with. Don't be like my sons were at that sort of stage in their life where they hear the garage door going up and now let me be obedient. Let me follow my father's instructions. As opposed to Jesus Christ is coming back. And the reality is this, based on what I understand scripture to teach, in any moment he can come for his church. I may not get through this message and he can come for his church. And then... It's too late to scramble. God has given you a period of time. And this is why Peter says, the time is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. You've had enough time in the world. Now live for the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and gave himself for you. Don't you have, shouldn't you have a hatred for sin? When you see what sin did to your Savior, Shouldn't this motivate you to live differently? And now he's given you instructions, live accordingly. He may come back any moment. And this is what Peter is saying. The end of all things is near. Therefore, but what does he say? Let's understand. We want to talk for a moment about prayer and about love and about hospitality and about service. So let's look at those four uh, virtues. Four opportunities. Notice what he says first. Be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Isn't that interesting? Because uh, one might think, well, Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, you might think he would say, now, therefore, go and be evangelist. Go and witness to the world. But he doesn't. He says, sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And Peter is also playing on words here a bit, because go back to verse 3. I want you to see something in verse 3. Notice in verse 3, the words that he uses in different ways, he says, drunkenness, carousing, and drinking parties. And what's the, it's obvious, drunkenness is just that. What, what happens when one is drunk? You, you lose what? Sobriety. We talk about taking a sobriety test, and they will say, well, uh, walk on a straight line. And maybe the officer pulls a person over and they say, well, you look like you may be a bit drunk. Can you walk on a straight line? And that person may be able to just do that because they're sober. But if they're drunk and based on how certain people respond to it, they may do what? They, they may just sort of 
There's a bit of a movement. They don't have control of their faculties. He said, that's how you used to live. But notice how Paul, Peter is using the words, now be sober in spirit, sound judgment. Because what happens when a person is drunk? They don't have good judgment, do they? Absolutely not. That was your former life. Now he's saying, now live in a way that you have keen judgment. You make good decisions. You're sober. You have your faculties. And you're focused on this spiritual war that you're engaged in. But he says, for the purpose of prayer. So right away we learn a lesson here about the importance of prayer. I mean, if Grace Bible Fellowship is to be a biblical fellowship, it must believe in the priority of prayer. To be a praying people who can pray for others, who can go to the living God and say, God, will you intervene on behalf of my brother or my sister? Who can go on behalf of God and say, God, I know they're hurting. Will you heal their hurts? Will you bind up their wounds? Who can go before the living God and say, God, will you open the eyes of those who are maybe in our midst who don't know you? Who can go to the living God and say, God, will you help us reach into this community so we can be a light in this community? That's what we do when we're people who are have an understanding of the purpose of prayer. Be found a praying people when Jesus Christ comes again. When he comes again. What a privilege to be able to pray. And the only reason that we can pray is because Jesus Christ suffered and what happened? The veil was torn in two and now we have full access to God. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive grace in time of need. So prayer, to be a biblical church, to be a biblical fellowship, you must be a people of prayer. It's interesting to me, and this is not, sometimes people struggle with prayer, Um, I actually teach a class at our seminary on prayer. It's a required course at our seminary. And we made it a required course because we said to men, it is important that you be praying men, that you stand in the gap for your people, that you pray for them. And even men at the master's seminary, men that have very deep convictions, um, have a high view of God, this is one area where they struggle still a great deal. Even with my students. Prayer. And think with me for a moment, isn't it true, wouldn't it be true that when we don't pray as we should, we're essentially saying, God, I can do this on my own. God, I am sufficient without you. In one sense, a prayerless life is really an arrogant life because you are making a statement that I have enough resources within myself to do this for you. And we don't. Peter says, first of all, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming, be a people of prayer. But notice what else he does. What else is important? Look with me at verse 8. Love. We have to live with the priority of love. Not only must we live with the priority of prayer, but we must live with the priority of love. He says, notice what he says in verse 8, above all. And above all is talking about love and hospitality and service, but he begins with saying, Make sure that you keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And 
fervent. Let me just pause here for a moment and talk about this word, to be fervent. A very interesting word um, in the Greek language. Uh, to be fervent, it, it can be translated to be earnest about something. To be constrained, to be without ceasing, to be wholehearted is what it's saying. The word was literally used of um, of an athlete when he would be engaged in, whether it be in wrestling or in running, when he his muscles that were stretching. That's how the word would have been used. The word was actually also used in a horse. If if you've seen a horse in full gallop, it's saying as that horse is in full gallop, he's stretching and he's straining himself. So uh, there's fervency in that horse as he gallops. And what Peter's saying, be gallant, if you will. Be um, wholehearted, if you will. Be straining, if you will, when it comes to love. Why is it necessary? Why is it necessary that I be fervent in love? Why not? Why doesn't he simply say, well, just love? He says, be fervent in your love with one another. Why is love so important? Why must you be a loving congregation? I mean, what does it mean to be a loving people? What does it mean to love one another? How do we emulate the love of Jesus Christ? If you go back to verse that probably many of us learned at an early age, but is one of the most profound in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave. And ultimately love is that I give of myself for others. To love. Jesus tells us that we must love one another. How will men know that we are his disciples? He said, well, they'll know that you are my disciples because of your love for one another. If they're involved, which they are, in a spiritual battle, we need to understand that as they're engaged in this spiritual battle, it's difficult for them to fight a battle on two fronts. That is, what do I mean by that? If a church is not praying for one another, and if a church is not loving one another, that church cannot possibly be as strong as it's meant to be. Remember, Peter is writing to people who are being persecuted. Their families are being torn apart. Their lives are being taken from them. So they're battling the world and the outside against them. And then if there's a battle internally, that is going to make it very difficult to grow. Um, one place that I love visiting in the States is, um, you may have seen pictures of it before in, in Washington, D.C., and there's a Lincoln Memorial, and then there's something that's called a World War II um, Memorial. And at that World War II Memorial, on one end, it's called, it, it says the Pacific. On the other end, it's called the Atlantic. And it talks about what's called the, the two theaters of war. Because one was fought in the Pacific, and one was fought in the Atlantic. And I'm, because of my father's background, and somewhat of my background, and my son's background, I've I tend to read things and, and like that part of history and all the things involved in it. And what's interesting about it, how the world was involved in this war, fighting on these two theaters, these two fronts. And it, at times, troops were fighting in the Pacific Ocean against the Japanese, and then troops are fighting against um, um, the Third Reich and, and against Italy um, on in the Atlantic realm, if you will, and how you wonder how did they accomplish that fighting on all these fronts? 
What resources were involved in that? And I began to think about that as I was even standing there looking at it and just trying to imagine it and knowing some of the history. Um, the church is fighting up front. The world is attacking us. The world doesn't want our message. The world doesn't want our Christ. The world doesn't want our doctrine. The world doesn't want our words. The world doesn't want our life because our life indicts them. When we live Christianity, it says to them, you're wrong. It's Christ and Christ alone. Now, if the world is fighting against us, what do you think is going to happen if we're fighting amongst ourselves? We're fighting two battles. It's a battle in the world. We fight against the world, and as the world comes against us more and more and more, and then we come to the church, which should be the place where we can be resupplied for the battle outside. We can be encouraged again for the battle outside, but now we're fighting amongst ourselves on two fronts. It should only be one front. It should be we, God's people, because we are warriors. Christ was a warrior. We are overcomers, and we're fighting against the world. But you need to understand, when I talk about fighting against the world, some people take that and they simply mean, well, yes, my whole mission in life is to always tell people how they're wrong. No, the fight against the world is a fight for truth. That's the fight against the world. We, we hold up the truth to the world, and that truth as it's lived out and as it's proclaimed should be attractive to people. And here's something else that's important. As Jesus Christ said, how will they know that you're my disciples? You'll know by your love for one another. People should be able to come to a church, to this church, to this fellowship, to this congregation, and see amongst you a love for one another. And when they see that you fervently love one another, then that can be attractive to them. That's how we can also fight in this spiritual battle. The scripture is clear that we're to love one another. You know, there is um, one famous race. Uh, there's a, you may be familiar with it, the Belmont Stakes. It took place in 1973. Great thoroughbred. No, people would say never will there be another one like it. Secretariat. And Secretariat ran this race against other thoroughbreds. And there it was. The, the race starts, and Secretariat is with the other horses. And Secretariat takes a lead by one length. And Secretariat takes a lead by six lengths. And Secretariat takes a lead by 15 lengths. He's ahead. And Secretariat takes a length by 25 lengths. Secretariat finishes the race 31 lengths ahead of the other horses. It had never been done before. Nothing like it. It was astonishing. And Secretariat went on to be the, one of the most dominant stallions uh, in history. But what was interesting that when Secretariat died, people wondered why was it able to, to run with such a capacity? When normally for a horse to run like that, they would die. I mean, the heart would burst. And remember this word for fervent is like a horse when he's galloping, he's straining. Well, here's the reason why. It had to do with his heart. Peter says this. Earlier in Peter, he says, you're supposed to love one another from the heart. Love one another from the heart. So the key is our heart. 
Secretary's heart, a normal stallion, their heart would weigh about eight and a half pounds. Eight and a half pounds. Do you know how large Secretary's heart was? Secretary's heart was 22 pounds. 22 pounds. And it allowed him to run with such fervency. It allowed him to strain the way that he did. And what Peter is saying to us in the body of Christ, I believe that we're to be a people who can fervently love one another. And sometimes it means that our love is stretched because people have hurt us, people have offended us. But yet in the body of Christ, Peter's telling us, yes, remember, fervently love because love covers a multitude of sins, which essentially is saying this, love will allow you to forgive your brother and sister in Christ. Jesus Christ said, Remember when um, the disciples asked him, well, how much, how often do I forgive? Do I forgive seven times? And they thought, well, seven was really this admirable number. And what did Jesus Christ say? Yes, well, no, I say it's 70 times seven. That is, when your brother comes to you, you're willing to forgive. What will allow me to forgive when I've been hurt in the body of Christ? Love. Love. Christ has loved us, and we have to love others. Notice verse 9 of 1 Peter. What does he say there? Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Why was this necessary? Because the church is being persecuted, and people would have to open their homes. They would have to open, open them to missionaries that might be traveling, preachers that were going to communicate the gospel, and to one another. Imagine if you're being persecuted, some of them would lose their homes. And now the question is, where do I go? You can come here, we show hospitality, but we do it without complaint. We do it with motives that are pure. And then last, we have to be a people who will serve the Lord. He says here, as each one has received a special gift, employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. What is he communicating here? God has given us a gift, and each one of us should use that gift in the body of Christ. I look out, and some of you I've gotten to know over the weekend, others I don't know, others I've just um, met you. But each one of you, Peter is saying, must make a contribution. If you're to be here at Grace Bible Fellowship, each one of you has been equipped to make a contribution. You may never stand up here. But there's something you can do in this body to help this body be healthy. There's a contribution that you can make. All of you can be a people of prayer. All of you can express love to one another. And some of you may have a greater capacity to show hospitality to one another. But every one of you, God is saying, there's some role for you to play. People may never see that role, but it's important. It may simply be the, the stacking of chairs. That's important. It may mean that you work with the sound equipment. That's important. It may mean that you help host when there's hospitality, that you can gather things together, that you can cook, you can bake, you can do whatever it may be. You can teach children. You can go and evangelize. There's a role for you to play. Everyone has a role. It's important that we understand that because it says each one has received a special gift. Every believer, God is saying, I've given you a capacity to help the body of Christ. Now please do it. So that the body can be equipped because it's engaged in a spiritual war. That's what he's communicating. And the last thing in verse 11. 
Whoever is to speak is to do so as he's speaking the utterances of God. And you're serving by the strength which God supplies. That is, we rest in God's grace. And in the end, the ultimate purpose of our life is this. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. We do everything that we do for the glory of God. You know, all of us have a, a life verse, I suppose, or may, maybe you don't. It doesn't. It's not required, obviously. And uh, I was sharing with the family last night about you know my mom, who passed when I was seven. But what's interesting, I although she passed when I was seven, I, I seemed to know a lot about her. I have faint memories of her before she passed, but I seemed to know a lot about her because. So many other people knew her, and I was raised by my dad, who was an army man. And um, but there's stories about mom. Your mom would do this. Your mom was like that, and so they filled in many of the gaps um, about her life for me. And one thing was about her favorite verse, and her favorite ber- verse was this idea that whatever we do in word or deed, we do it all to the glory of God. And that stuck with me. I mean, that's our life purpose, isn't it? That we do all that we do for the glory of God. And I mentioned to you in this passage, it hopefully will help us be lights in the world. How? Because we realize that Christ has suffered. Now, I may have to suffer for him. We realize Christ paid the price for my sin. Now that should cause me to hate sin because of the pain it caused my Savior and the pain it causes my life and even the life of others. I should be a person who can live for the glory of God because I realize that now I need to be a person of prayer. I I can live for the glory of God because I need to show love to one another. I can be a person that can glorify God because now I can show hospitality to others to whatever capacity I can. I can live for the glory of God because now I can serve the Lord by His strength. Um, one thing that's beautiful in this area, I was hoping, it may not happen, um, are the what's called the Northern Lights or the Aurora. And um, I there's actually got on Google and, and looked it up and thought, um, maybe there's a time that I could see them before I leave. And, and what's interesting is that I found some information I've not seen before. There's actually what's called uh, an Aurora uh, Activity Guide. And it has a meter that shows you that it's likely that you can see it. It's like a scale from 1 to 10. And I, th- I looked it up, and I think tomorrow it's at a 7. There was even a, a website that says, if you want to be notified when the lights are really going to be brilliant, we'll send you an email so you can make sure that you're in place to see these great lights. And I thought, that's interesting. Maybe uh, if I come again, I'll sign up on that email. And they'll tell me, here's the time that you can go, and you can see the northern lights, and it'll be a great time to see it. And there was even an app that tells you, here's a meter. The lights are going to be out. You can go out and see these lights. I thought that was very interesting. You are the lights. See, you are the lights. And you can take your light. And it shouldn't be a sliding scale. It shouldn't be, well, the likelihood is about a four to see the northern lights. uh, But if this time, it's going to be about a nine. You shouldn't be a sliding scale. 
because you're living for the glory of God. Your light should always be bright. Do you agree with that? And when you take that light, others can see there's something different about that person. There's something different about that group. They love one another and they serve one another and they're hospitable to one another and they pray for one another. There's something different about them. They talk about being engaged in spiritual warfare, but they aren't coarse. They aren't harsh. They're caring and kind and loving because that's, that was the life of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to be a light here and take that light into this world around you. And just like people like myself would love to see those lights, internally, people do want to see the light of hope. And you have that light of hope. And I pray that this light of hope here can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And you can be a witness to this world. Amen. Father, thank you for the word you give us. I pray that it would encourage our hearts. That you would use it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.